a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is the podcast in which we focus on something that's going on in the world. Uh, doesn't matter how small a pocket of the world it is, it could be a really big issue, something smaller, less on your radar. But uh, this man breaks it down for you. We choose something different every week to discuss. Dr. Keith Suda, couple of PhDs in international relations and related topics, commentator, very well known around Australian media. You've been doing this for decades. You ain't nothing that you don't know about, Keith, <laughs> uh, or that you can't break down into simple terms so people like me, for example, can understand. My name's Kate Mack. We've worked together for a number of years in TV, radio. We are going to talk about Afghanistan today. It is, you know, of huge interest to a lot of Australians. Um, we went to war there two decades ago along with the Americans and the British after 20, September 11 to oust al-Qaeda. That happened and then we stayed the course. We lost Australian lives, Keith. And then this week we've just seen the horrific pictures of the Taliban who was ousted by the American governments with our support come back in power 20 years later. Afghanis racing for their lives for the borders I mean, we have known, we've mentioned this on this program. They have been in negotiations with Taliban with America for 18 months. Yep, with Donald Trump. Donald Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Back in 2016, when he was running for the White House, first time round, he detected that Americans were tired of fighting other people's wars. It, they were costing blood and treasure, to use American expression. And so he said that if elected, he would withdraw from Afghanistan. The problem was trying to negotiate with the Taliban, negotiate with the government in Kabul. But Trump did arrive at an agreement to pull out this year, which, as you said, is the 20th anniversary year in which the Americans moved in. It's the longest war in American history or, for that matter, Australian history. And so the withdrawal has been continued by Joe Biden. He's changed a few dates, et cetera, but essentially what Biden is doing is implementing Trump's agreement with the Taliban to pull out. What I've been amazed at is the way that other people are amazed at how quickly the whole situation has deteriorated. I think it just shows the mainstream media were not doing their job properly in educating people and preparing them for this disaster. We've been lied to for 20 years by generals and the politicians. So every Australian prime minister from John Howard onwards, uh, every American president from George Bush Jr. onwards, they've lied to us. And people sitting at home watching the news on Afghanistan in between their sporting results and entertainment gossip just were unprepared for what we have lived through. But a number of us have been warning about that, as we have in these podcasts. You know, nobody who's been listening to these podcasts should be saying, oh, I've been taken by surprise because we were warning about that. I think that part of the complexity is just trying to get your head around Afghanistan. So perhaps I might just give a, a quick history of, of Afghanistan. People will think of Afghanistan as the um, cemetery of empires, never been uh, successfully invaded. The British tried twice in the 19th century. The Soviets have also tried. And now, of course, the Americans and Australians have failed. But Afghanistan itself, when it's peaceful, it's very peaceful. It's very welcoming. A comment that I keep making is that some of our older Australian listeners will remember going through Afghanistan in their combi van My like your mother. Did. <laughs> Perhaps sampling some of the local product on their way through. <laughs> uh, I won't inquire of your mother's behaviour. 
that was a more traditional view of Afghanistan. It was being left alone and left others alone. The change begins um, in the the 1970s and uh, under the presidency of Jimmy Carter. And Zebanu Brzezinski, his national security advisor, wanted to draw the Soviets into a Vietnam-type situation. And so he was the one who had encouraged Islamism, Islamic extremism, within Afghanistan. And that then drew the Soviets in because the what was then the Soviet empire had a string of Islamic republics. And the fear from Moscow is that they would end up being tainted by this extreme brand of Islamic thinking. So the Russians thought they could conduct a quick operation beginning in 1979 when they would just be able to nip all of this in the bud. It turned out to be a disaster. Zebanu Brzezinski went to his grave still congratulating himself for that operation. But when you look at what has flowed from that American intervention, uh, so what has happened is that the Soviets got bogged down for a decade, which is exactly what Brzezinski wanted. The Americans armed the Mujahideen, the the so-called freedom fighters in Afghanistan, who fought back against the Soviet Union. And the uh, Afghani soldiers, uh, such as they were, fought a guerrilla struggle. I I was reading a report recently about how they used to look at the birds as an early warning sign for the advancement of the Soviets. In other words, if they could see the birds suddenly flying into the sky, they knew trouble was coming towards them. And so they would hide behind the rocks until the the Soviets had passed or whatever. So it's very interesting how the Soviets really never understood how difficult it was going to be in Afghanistan. So the Soviets left in 1989, chaos ensued. The Americans were also, of course, caught up in this because they'd been arming the Mujahideen against the Soviets. They then had to go back in to try to buy some of the high-quality weaponry, which they'd provided free of charge to the Mujahideen, because some of them could shoot down aircraft flying over Afghanistan. So there was chaos in the country, chaos. And a group of young scholars, that, uh, in singular, in Arabic is Talib, and in plural, Taliban. So you had these young scholars coming back from Pakistan. So these were the children who had now grown up who had fled the country when the Soviets invaded in 1979. And so they had had gone into Pakistan. They'd been indoctrinated in the Saudi Arabian finance schools in Pakistan. They'd come back as strict scholars, Talib scholar, and they were the ones who in 1996, after the fighting, because they'd received training from the Pakistani military, they took over the country. So between 1996 and 2001, they brought stability to the country at a brutal price. They cut off hands, they had people stoned, whatever, but they maintained order. The problem was they did it in such a brutal way that only a handful of countries recognised them. All of them were Islamic countries who recognised the Taliban. And then the Taliban agreed to host al-Qaeda. So this was Osama bin Laden. So he's Saudi Arabia, right? He wasn't uh, from Afghanistan. But his group were based in Afghanistan. And in 1997, so this is when President Clinton is still in the White House, he declared war on the United States. And he sought to liberate the Islamic world from the American presence. Remember, he'd been involved in fighting with American assistance, the Soviets. 
So then he turned on the people who'd been backing him, turned on the Americans. Why? Because, again, they're foreigners. Nothing personal. It's just you're, you're foreign. We don't want you here. Get out. So and in his case, of course, he was talking about the whole Islamic world, not just Afghanistan. The Taliban government allowed him to stay. He conducted his operations in East Africa. That was 1998. And also uh, other attacks, including back in Saudi Arabia, his own homeland, Indonesia, etc. So what we're looking at then is, is one way of looking at Afghanistan is to say it's actually a war against terrorism, which is stupid as a phrase, but it's the one that Bush used. It's a war on a form of warfare. It's a tautology. But one of the things that we see in Afghanistan is therefore the Americans going in with Western allies in 2001 to uh, retaliate against Al-Qaeda's attack on 9-11. It wasn't, a, it wasn't to oust the Taliban. It was to go nope. after Al-Qaeda. It was going after Al-Qaeda. So it had a very specific war aim. NATO welcomed the opportunity. NATO's got its own problems. NATO, remember, was set up to deal with the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union had collapsed in 1991. What do we do? We've just lost our best enemy. It's bad enough to lose your best friend, but to lose your worst enemy... So NATO, at long last, could see that it had an operation. Now, of course, Afghanistan is nowhere near the North Atlantic, but nonetheless, the the lawyers in NATO said, um, all right, well, we're going to use the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So NATO went in. So you had an American operation and you had a NATO operation. And all sorts of complicated politics, I've got to say, arose out of that because in 2003, George Bush decided to invade Iraq. Right, So he took his eye off the Afghani ball, went into Iraq, and the French, who had been supportive of the Americans in Afghanistan, opposed the invasion of Iraq. So the French said, well, uh, we now need to put limitations on sort of operations that we will conduct in Afghanistan because we don't want you being able to remove your troops from Afghanistan to fight a war that we disagree with in Iraq. So very complicated. So what we see, first of all, in Afghanistan is simply this so-called war on terror and getting al-Qaeda, and they did that in the first year. They didn't get bin Laden, which is a story in itself. Uh, he went over the border and retired in, in Pakistan, down the road from the Pakistani Military Academy. And then the, the, the um, Americans and their NATO allies and Australia just stayed on in Afghanistan and with no clear war aim. And we looked a few weeks ago at a, a top-secret report which has been released by the Washington Post, which is available free of charge on the Washington Post website. It goes on for 36 pages. But it, it was a, an investigation carried out by American officials to find out what had gone wrong in Afghanistan. And the people who were interviewed for the report spoke freely and were willing to admit that they had no clear war aims. So they don't know what they were doing there. Were they there to educate young girls? Were they there to stop the growing of opium? Were they there to create some sort of democracy in an Islamic country? Um, so at war with the truth, the Afghanistan papers, well worth reading. It's frightening reading. If I'd had a, an ex of kin killed in Afghanistan, I'd be horrified to read this report. That person died for nothing. And also, doesn't it also say, Keith, and I'm just going to quoting what I saw in news programs this week, but that also says that they didn't even understand the people. They didn't try yep. to understand the people, the way they operated their culture. They weren't empathetic at all when they're in part of their mission. That's right. And that's how the, and that's, I think we've got to look separately at the whole issue about whether or not governments can learn from history. 
because this is a rerun of what we've seen elsewhere. Um, so let me just get back to the, the Afghanistan situation. So number one, they're caught up in this so-called war on terror uh, where they w- went in to get al-Qaeda. The problem is that Pakistan is playing both sides of the street. It's receiving American aid, uh, assisting the groups in uh, Afghanistan. So one of the dimensions to the, the struggle in Afghanistan has been this so-called war on terror, but there are also a couple of others as well that we need to look at. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We are talking today about Afghanistan and breaking it right down because there are a lot of questions around the history of Afghanistan, how this war started, how it turned out the way it did with the Taliban who were ousted when we all went in there as America, Australia, England, coming back to power now. So you're in the middle of describing that yeah, and explaining so, that. So one of them is, is the war on terror, and that's what most people are aware of. But then secondly, in Afghanistan, there is a civil war going on as well. There are very few Afghanis in Afghanistan. Uh, by that, I mean that you owe your loyalty to your family and your tribe, not to your country. So tribal loyalty is very important. So if you look at the Mujahideen, which the Americans supported, they were successful in driving out the Soviet Union. That's what brought all the tribes together. They had a common enemy. So between 1979 and 1989, they knew they were focused on getting rid of the Soviet Union, which they succeeded in 1989. The Mujahideen then, in fact, went back to their tribal loyalties and went back to then fighting their different tribal groupings. So obviously the group that we're talking about mostly are the Pashtuns who are the, the Taliban. Remember, they were the ones who were driven out of the country when the Soviets invaded. They went to be educated in uh, Pakistan in the uh, by the, the Saudi Arabian uh, finance. But they're, they're only one tribe. And it's a tribe that straddles the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. The border that exists was drawn up by the British. So it's an artificial border and it runs through Pashtun territory. So the Taliban are ethnic Pashtuns. But you've also got in the country, you've got Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazara, who are Shia rather than Sunni. So the problem is that you've got a civil war which is operating in that country as well. So even if you took the Americans out of it, you'd still have struggles that have been reopened by the Soviets' invasion of the country. Uh, so that is that is certainly a problem. And then uh, the third problem is that it's a regional struggle as well, which is what we tend to also overlook, that um, you've got a struggle that's going on between India and Pakistan. Now, if you look back in Afghani history, Afghanistan is really a no-person's territory between the old Russian Empire and British India. And so their interface was through Afghanistan. And the Afghanis in those days, the 19th century, didn't like foreigners then either. So the British tried to invade without success. The Russians didn't get very far. So it became a borderland between the Russian Tsarist Empire and British India, which is today India and Pakistan. Well, We've moved on now in world affairs. Uh, Tsarist Russia became the Soviet Union and is now a, a separate country called Russia. And British India is now India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. 
And so we see a regional struggle, which is between India and Pakistan as the heirs of these of this previous empire. And so Pakistan wants a client state, a client regime in Afghanistan. In other words, Pakistan, holy land in Urdu, sees itself as a leader of the Islamic world and then sees Afghanistan as a component of that Islamic world, but subsidiary to Pakistan. Meanwhile, India, which has its own grievances against Pakistan, is also anxious to make sure that Afghanistan does not become a breeding ground for Islamic extremists because they've got their own Muslim population inside India. In fact, there are more Muslims in India than there are in Pakistan. And generally speaking, the Muslims who decided to stay with the breakup of British India have done reasonably well in India rather than if they'd uh, gone north into Pakistan. So we see, therefore, the Indians being super cautious about the risk of Islamic terrorism. We've seen, of course, terrorist attacks in India, mm. uh, partly inspired by uh, Mumbai, Pakistan. Remember? That's the right. Hotel in Mumbai. Yep. yep. Absolutely. And of course, the the other worrying factor is that India and Pakistan are both nuclear powers, and their respective capital cities are geographically quite close to each other. So there is this regional struggle that is going on. China, uh, which is shaping up for its own struggle against India is supporting Pakistan in in this um, manoeuvring that, that is going on. So that is a third dimension to this struggle in Afghanistan. And, of course, the Americans have pulled out, but that's not the end of the story. That's just simply the end of the American chapter in Afghanistan's long history because India and China are now manoeuvring, as well as Pakistan, to get access to Afghanistan. You see, when the Soviets invaded in 1979, they sent in a team of, of geologists just to look at what is actually under the uh, rocks in Afghanistan. Of which there are many. Of which there's a hell of a lot, particularly rare earths. And of course, you and I, by relying on mobile phones, use rare earths. So there may be $3 trillion worth of rare earths in Afghanistan. So, and of course, China is looking to Afghanistan as a part of its infrastructure. This what's called the One Belt and Road program where China, in the 20 years the Americans have been bogged down chasing a handful of Islamic extremists, the Chinese have redesigned the global economy with China at the centre. And the infrastructure on the basis of this is this Belt and Road. So they want to get the um, access to the rare earths in the northern part of Afghanistan and they want to be able to build infrastructure which will get them down uh, Afghanistan and then Pakistan and then down into the Indian Ocean. So although we're winding up the American chapter, we've got a whole new chapter opening up and who knows what sort of problems will be because don't forget one of the worries that China has got with uh, Afghanistan is that you could end up with an extremist regime in Kabul encouraging the Muslims in Western China, East Turkmenistan as it's called by some. So there's a whole new chapter that is opening up. So the American chapter finishes. The Australian chapter is also finished up. 41 dead Australians, 2,500 dead Americans. But the caravan moves on. A new chapter opens up with this struggle uh, for the regional control over Afghanistan. And, Keith, you know, it would be poignant just to say at this t- point in time, this is a very fast-moving story. And this week we have seen, you know, there's a huge amount of anxiousness about 
the Taliban being back in power and resorting back to their old policies, which were very backwards, but you do see in Saudi Arabia still these days, chopping off of hands for robbery, yep. stoning females who have committed what they see as adultery to death in the street, public executions, uh, women not being able to be educated past the age of 12, if at all, according to some of the commanders, women not being able to work. Prior, you know, the Taliban, they had to beg for money if they'd lost their husband or there was no one else working. They had the only option for them was to beg. The Taliban are saying that's not going to be the case. How much do we believe of what they're saying? And we just have to wait and see. We have to wait and see. I don't believe them. I think that this, but it may be the Taliban, having had 20 years in exile, seeing what the world is like, particularly for those who've been living in the flesh pots of the Middle East may well say, look, uh, last time we were in power, only a handful of countries recognised us, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, et cetera. And so uh, they may well say, look, we don't want to go down that North Korean option. We want to be accepted by the international community. And so we will therefore moderate what we do, particularly in the cities, because that's where the journalists are. And they will behave appallingly out in the regional areas, but no one goes out there, not, not Western journalists anyway. And also, if you, and it intrigues me why we're now so suddenly concerned about the education of young girls in Afghanistan. Why aren't we saying something about Saudi Arabia? Afghanistan is not the only example of the strict interpretation of Sharia law. And a lot of parts of Africa as well, for that matter. Absolutely. Mm. So, uh, yes, it's a very interesting new era opening up for Afghanistan. And can you understand, Keith, the sentiments of the Australian families of men and women who lost their lives in yeah. Afghanistan because they feel it's been wasted. Yeah, I, I need to explain that I'm very critical of the generals and the and the politicians of both sides who have misled us. It's not just the Liberals, but Labor also, when they've been in power, have also been stupid in their statements. But it's interesting, when you talk to ordinary soldiers who've served, they knew there was something rotten in all of this, but they couldn't speak out. They could speak to people like me off the record but they could not speak out publicly because they're a member of the armed force. You're not allowed to do that. And so they they would have found it very frustrating knowing they were fighting a war without clear war aims. And that's what you're trained in the military. You've got to know what the objective is. And after 20 years, we still don't know what the objective We knew what it was in the beginning. We knew in the first year it was to get al-Qaeda and get Osama bin Laden. But then the other 19 years, well, we've, we've just been wasting lives. And that is an important segue to our next topic that you'll need to listen to uh, of this podcast and we'll be delving into how governments should have learnt that you cannot win a war in Afghanistan in the first place. They should have learnt that decades ago, uh, but they went ahead with it anyway. And, you know, when governments need to learn their lesson, we'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks, so keep your ears out for that episode. Dr Keith, as always, amazingly enlightening. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.